why Americans see Gettysburg as the Civil War battle is because what happened at Gettysburg is what most Americans believe we didn't do to each other. And that's kill each other with impunity. It's three days of fighting. It's 45,000 casualties. There's no other battle in the Civil War uh, that comes close to that number. And so it is the, the, the killing. Uh, th that is what it lures people in. You stand over there in those trees a mile away on Seminary Ridge with those men of Pickett's division or of Pettigrew's division or of Trimble's division, and you look across here and you sum up what you've experienced in the war so far. I'm sure there was abject fear. I'm sure there was anxiety, but I'm sure there was utter excitement that one more mile and it's all done. Yeah. One more mile and we win. One more mile and it's over, we go home. Well, I'm on the battlefield at Gettysburg and I've come here to discover why it is this battle more than any other battle of the American Civil War, which is the one that everybody remembers. Why is it this place, which is so memorialized, so monumentalized, so storied? What is it about Gettysburg? What narratives have been woven out of the events that took place here in July 1863? My name's Adam Smith, and this is The Last Best Hope podcast. This was a three-day battle on a vast scale. More than 150,000 soldiers fought here. 50,000 of them were casualties. But it was not just the scale of the violence that bestowed upon this battle a sacred place in American national mythology. The essence of the Gettysburg myth is that this was the place where the fate of the Republic was determined, where America was remade or reborn, re-consecrated and rededicated to freedom, which takes us straight to Lincoln. There's a school party behind me with a teacher reciting the Gettysburg Address to them. Um, he's got a few of the words wrong. He's looking at his phone to remind himself. Um, the kids are kind of 14 or 15, I would imagine. They're, they're not all looking gripped. We're standing here in the edge of the National Cemetery at Gettysburg. It's the military cemetery that was created in the immediate aftermath of the battle. Just over the fence in front of me here is the Municipal Cemetery. This was here before the battle. This is the Evergreen Cemetery, and it was actually here, the highest spot uh, in across the two cemeteries where Lincoln stood to deliver the Gettysburg Address on the 19th of November 1863. So that's about four months after the battle that had taken place here. Lincoln wasn't even the main speaker of this event. The main speaker was Edward Everett, former senator and ambassador to... Oh, they're giving the, they're giving the teacher a round of applause anyway. Good for him. Everett was the main speaker. He spoke for an hour and a half about the significance of the Battle of Gettysburg in human history, comparing it to the battles of Marathon and Waterloo. And then Lincoln stood up to give a few appropriate remarks as he described them. 
and he'd sat down famously before the cameraman of the day on the day had had a chance to set up his camera and expose the picture. It was such an unexpectedly short speech. But it was a very memorable speech, of course, and the reason why this school party and thousands of other people come here to this spot to remember what Lincoln said here is because he encapsulated in his few brief remarks his understanding of why the Civil War was being fought, what it was that was being defended, why it mattered that the United States survived and the Confederacy, this attempt to create a slaveholding republic in the middle of the 19th century, was defeated. But why was a battle fought here in south-central Pennsylvania at all? Well, during the summer of 1863, Robert E. Lee had achieved a stunning victory in Virginia, central Virginia, a place called Chancellorsville. It's from Chancellorsville that Lee saw an opening, an opportunity to take the war to the north. Peter Carmichael, professor of history at Gettysburg College. And he did it for a number of reasons, and I believe they were sound reasons. And he does it after a series, as you say, of dramatic victories in the, in the preceding months he does it again in the in the summer of in the summer of 63 so this was the only big battle fought in a in a free state and that had all kinds of implications i mean at the time the stakes as you're saying the stakes seemed and were really really high they were always high whenever the whenever the army of the potomac the union army confronted Lee's army, but they were higher here than ever. Because if the Union army couldn't win here on home soil, then where on earth could they win? So you're correct. The stakes were extraordinarily high. And then what we have at the end of June, ironically enough, are the commanders of both armies, George Gordon Meade of the Army of the Potomac, R.E. Lee of the Army of Northern Virginia, neither one of them wanting a battle at the end of June. Uh, George Gordon Meade had just come into command at the very end of June. He wasn't even certain where Lee was. Lee wasn't certain where the Army of the Potomac was. But on July 1st, there was what's called a meeting engagement. It's a spontaneous engagement. It is one that, again... Neither side had chosen this battlefield. And they didn't come to Gettysburg, the Confederates, to do what? They didn't come here to get shoes. So you're referring to a kind of one of the old stories about about, about Gettysburg. Is it the Confederate army only were here because they, they thought there was a kind of a shoe depot or something? There was a shoe store. And that's what's fascinating is to try to understand why people are fascinated with this place. We have this horrible bloodletting... And yet, and yet, people, what do they, they're drawn to what I call bedtime stories. These kinds of uh, almost sort of romantic, nostalgic things in which war doesn't really seem like war. So, oh, this horrible battle occurred because all these Confederates just wanted some shoes. Overlooking what? That the Confederate army in Pennsylvania became an army of slave catchers. That this army, that they captured not just former slaves, but free blacks, and sent them all the way to Richmond and put them into slavery and sold them into the Deep South. This army wasn't an army of Southern gentlemen who just hands off of Northern property. No, they took freely. Did they level the property and the hard war tactics of Sherman in 1864? Absolutely not. But this is an army. It's a killing machine. It's a professional machine. And their morale is extraordinarily high. And on July 1st, 
Why the battle came here is because of the road network. All roads lead to Gettysburg. And so it was a way for Lee to concentrate his army. Just a portion of George Gordon Meade's army was in the Gettysburg vicinity on July the 1st. It's a meeting engagement. And at the end of the day, Lee witnessed what he had witnessed in Virginia. The Union Army retreating and his Confederate troops victorious. Union Army retreats to high ground called Cemetery Hill, overlooking the town of Gettysburg. They decide, the Federals or Union Army, to take their stand. And there is the first great controversy between Lee and his key lieutenant, James Longstreet. Should they continue the assault? Longstreet did not want to do that. Now, again, this goes back to the politics of war. Lee believed that the moment had come. Lee believed that those political goals, they are alignment with with strategy and, more importantly, with tactics, the actual fighting. Longstreet pointed to the high ground and said, we can't take it. In Lee's mind, you can't afford not to try. When's this moment going to come again? Lee didn't know. So the next day, July 2nd, Confederates struck the Union flanks, left flank and right flank. They pushed the Federals back almost to the breaking point. There is, we got to mention him, he's an academic, an academic who does something practical and heroic is so rare, as we all know. Joshua Chamberlain, a professor from Bowdoin College, Maine, man, he gets all the credit for winning the Battle of Gettysburg. It's nonsense, but his story is a dramatic one, an important one, and we could talk about Killer Angels at some point. But Chamberlain was, was, was one of the commanders down in the left, in the Union left flank, down at, uh, down at Little Rantop. There were many other points on the Union line. This is this is why you're saying it's it's all nonsense, right? It's not nonsense. It's not nonsense that you know Chamberlain uh, was in command of a regiment that kind of held on in fierce fighting on July the second. But but your point is that it wasn't just at that single point in the line that the, that the Union line held. There were a lot of moments like that. There were a lot of Joshua Chamberlains like that. But certainly what he did and how that story has been told, not just by him but by a novelist named Michael Shara. The book's Killer Angels. It is a must read. It is fiction, but it is awfully good. It is that book that elevated Chamberlain. It is that book that became a movie. And that was 1975, was it? Something like that? It's a powerful story. But what happened on July 2nd was somewhat encouraging to Lee. I mean, he nearly broke the Union line, and he made that determination the next day to strike both of the Union flanks. But as soon as dawn came on July the 3rd, the Federal struck first, on their right flank, not Little Round Top, but a place called Copso. They strike first. Lee's plan unraveled, and Longstreet didn't attack at all. Lee had to then sort of uh, reconfigure his plans, which he did, and that resulted in the final attack called Pickett's Charge, about 12,000 men. It is a classic frontal assault. You go there today, people love to stand there, and they always ask themselves, what was Lee thinking? This is akin to suicide. And so we come to Pickett's Charge, the climax of the battle, the romantic centrepiece of the Gettysburg myth. On the third day, July the 3rd, 1863, at around 1pm, the Confederates launched an immense artillery bombardment designed to soften Union defences, after which came the infantry assault on the Federal centre that has gone down in history as Pickett's Charge. This was one of the great military disasters of modern history, an act of magnificent, stupendous gallantry and futility. Confederate soldiers advanced almost a mile over the fields, making their way up the gentle slope towards the low line of stones where Union troops waited. As they clambered over fences, with only the occasional dip in the land to obscure them from the sight of the defenders, artillery and rifle fire ripped into them. 
A few hundred of the attackers breached the Union line, but they were soon overwhelmed. It sometimes seems, however, as if what happened at Gettysburg is less important than what did not. It's the might-have-beens that makes this place so compelling. And of all the might-have-beens, none is so beguiling as that failed fatal Confederate assault on the final day, Pickett's Charge. It's intoxicating, that fantasy of alternative endings. Our imaginations are fired by the idea of a single turning point so profound that the destiny of nations lay in the balance. The southern novelist William Faulkner captured the yearning especially well. For every southern boy 14 years old, he wrote, not once but whenever he wants it, there is the instant when, it's still not yet two o'clock on that July afternoon in 1863, the brigades are in position behind the rail fence, the guns are laid and ready in the woods, and the furled flags are already loosened to break out, and Pickett himself, with his long oiled ringlets and his hat in one hand probably and his sword in the other, looking up the hill waiting for Longstreet to give the word, and it's all in the balance. It hasn't happened yet, it hasn't even begun yet, it not only hasn't begun yet but there's still time for it now not to begin against that position and in those circumstances which made more men than Garnet and Kemper and Armistead and Wilcox look grave. Yet it's going to begin. We all know that. We've come too far with too much at stake and that moment doesn't need even a 14-year-old boy to think this time. Maybe this time. With all this much to lose and all this much to gain. Pennsylvania. Maryland. The world the golden dome of Washington itself to crown with desperate and unbelievable victory, the desperate gamble. I think that it captures that collision of the past and the present and the future all coming together. I asked Peter Carmichael about that famous Faulkner quote. uh, If you, at the time, ever recognized or understood or gave Pickett's charge that kind of significance, all recognized that this Confederate assault after its failure was going to compel the retreat from Pennsylvania. Uh, But in that moment, there are very few who thought all was lost. Uh, Even once back on the other side of the Potomac River, amongst the officers and those who had a greater stake in the Confederate cause itself, usually slaveholders, uh, they wrote about how they were not defeated in Pennsylvania. And that's very much the message that's Um, that's conveyed in the press as well as in private letters. But ordinary soldiers had a very different take on that, uh, particularly poorer soldiers who found or thought that the battle was devastating and their weariness had reached a point where it compelled many to engage in outright dissent in that they they deserted, right? And desertion skyrocketed after Gettysburg. But to the charge itself and to that particular moment on July 3rd, Lee was taking a calculated gamble. Uh, in 1862, when he took command of the Confederate Army outside Richmond, there were some who questioned his aggressiveness. There was one man who knew of Lee and said that he was audacity personified. And in fact, you have it there. And on July the 3rd, audacity personified resulted in a disastrous um, defeat for Lee. But in so many other instances, it had not. And so for the men themselves, and this says everything about how they felt toward R.E. Lee, because of the victories that he had secured, the 
confidence that they had in him, that in that moment that Faulkner described for their soldiers, none of them, not a single one of them ever doubted the success of that charge because who had ordered it? One of the best places to go to understand why Gettysburg matters is the point in the Union line that was the focus of Pickett's charge. I went there with a massively experienced battlefield guide, Sue Boardman. Where we're standing here, we're standing in front of a, a, a circular metal fence and there's a little clump of trees, and I'm using the word clump, but the word that's always used is cops. Cops. Which I don't think is a word that's generally used in America, is it, to I describe a group of trees? I think it's a French word that means clump. <laughs> it means clump. It is a clump of trees. It's a clump of... There's a maybe small half stand. a dozen trees yeah, here. small stand. But it is known as the cops. The cops of trees. The cops of trees. What was the significance of the cops of trees on okay. July the 3rd? So if you're General Lee's army and you're trying to send 13,000 men across an expanse of ground, it's wise to have a landmark, a focal point. Now, while the cops of trees wasn't the absolute pinpoint location, he wanted this general vicinity from this clump of trees to the angle in the stone wall to our right would be General Lee's left which is only a distance of maybe, what would you say, less than an eighth of a mile between here and that angle in the wall. That is where he intended to make that breakthrough. And the goal, the ultimate goal, was Cemetery Hill to our right. So the the idea was that the Copse of Trees was a was a visual marker for yes. for his advancing troops. And bearing in mind, of course, that although we've been emphasising the you can see for 15 or 20 miles, when you're walking through on this undulating terrain, there are plenty of points where you lose the horizon. Yes. Plus. There's lots of smoke. smoke. And there's been a huge artillery bombardment. Huge. 150 and guns on the Confederate side, at least 100 on the Union side. And obviously the advancing Confederate troops are facing a barrage of fire from, from the Union line. So their visibility, they're going to be struggling with visibility, so they need a visual marker. The point about the angle here, where there is a, a stone wall that reaches a kind of right angle is there's a little kink there in the Union line which could be imagined to be a point of vulnerability I guess is that right? Absolutely absolutely and it turned out to be so definitely vulnerable for this reason imagine you're the guy in the corner of the of the angle closest to the Confederate line now you've got potentially enemy troops coming directly at your face but also directly getting into the space to your immediate right over the kink in that wall And that's exactly what happened. That was the breakthrough point of this charge. That's where Confederates very briefly broke this Union line, but only briefly. People have got to imagine this is is one of these great frontal assaults. There are other famous ones on history. Often they're associated with disaster, the charge of the Light Brigade, the first day of the Somme on July the 1st, 1916. D-Day? Uh, D-Day, big frontal assault of a, of a different kind that obviously was, was, was successful. Here on July the 3rd, a broiling hot day, but sunny like it is today, so the Confederate advancing forces did manage to break through at this point. And, and then what happened? They broke through briefly, but because of the uncoordination of the step-off, because there weren't enough troops to do the job, because the Union Army was better and stronger than General Lee had anticipated, there was a quick 
dismal failure. Barely 100 to 150 Confederates out of 13,000 breached this wall and were very quickly turned, very quickly. So this is the little pinprick moment where the Confederates breached the Union defences, but the Union army then quickly... They have plenty of, of troops in reserve as well. So the they Union can, does, The yes. Union does. So they can, they can quickly bring reinforcements to plug this gap. And they did. And they did. Uh, nevertheless, this is the point where the Union line was breached. And that, I think, brings us to the monument that we're standing in front of. And this whole battlefield is is scattered with monuments. It's like no other Civil War battlefield. About 1,300. 1,300. Counting the little markers and the big Granite and marble monuments. They're all over the place. Um, They're a fascinating story in and of themselves. The monument we're standing in front of is very unique in that it is one of only two that honors both sides of this conflict. All the rest are either exclusively Union or exclusively Confederate. This has a large bronze open book. And on its pages, where the book is open, on the left side, it's, it identifies the fight, the high watermark of the rebellion, meaning it's referring to this charge exclusively. And on it, you'll see the names of the assaulting column and the defending column. So everyone who participated in this short but decisive event is listed on the pages of this large bronze book. I just want to dwell a little bit on that phrase, the high watermark of the rebellion. So this is known as the high watermark uh, monument, isn't it? It is. It's a very evocative phrase. And you've got there a book written by a man called John Batchelder, who is pretty important to this story of how this monument came to be here and to how the the battlefield took shape. And how it's interpreted. And how it's interpreted in the the decades immediately after the Civil War. So tell us what you've got there, Sue. Okay, so Batchelder, um, he was an artist and and an educator from New England. He was 35 years old. And when the war started, he was fascinated by military history. So he embedded himself with the Union Army in 1862 with the idea that he would learn the ways of the military and then when that big battle that changed the universe happened, he would be here and he would write about it and he would write a book. So that's how people still thought about the Civil War as late as 1863, wasn't it? They were still at the very beginning of the war in 1861. Everyone thought, well, this is going to be, almost everybody thought, there's going to be one big battle and then everyone will go home and the issues yep. have been resolved. But as late as 1863, people are still looking, expecting for that big climactic that, battle. That thing that changes and, the tide. And when that... So it was almost even before... If, if you, One of our questions here is, you know, why, is, why did Gettysburg come to be known as the battle that determined the Civil War? There's almost a sense in which people were wanting Gettysburg to be that battle before the battle had even taken place, before anybody knew true. it was going to be. That is absolutely true. And by 63, we have a war-weary nation that wants that to happen. We want that decisive one to get this thing done. But so Mr. Batchelder finally got his wish. When the Battle of Gettysburg happened, he rushes to the battlefield. He starts... He wasn't here during the battle itself, was he? No, he wasn't. Well, because I guess 62 taught him, well, this is boring waiting for the big one. So, but he was on high alert. So he comes here and he begins his interpretation efforts. He will embed again, talk to lots. Winter camp he spent with generals and with enlisted men to get the story. And his idea was write a book and illustrate it because he was an artist. So that's why partly this monument is his baby. But here's what he said. He wrote a tour book on how to see the Battle of Gettysburg. The actual title of the book is 
Gettysburg what to see and how to see it. His very first edition is 1873. So he's already got this thing all figured out. That's an interesting title, isn't it? Not just what to see, but how to see what how you to see. see it. It. And basically he wrote the first tour of the battlefield. So in it is a quote I'd just like to read. When he's, he's bringing us to this location and he says here, it is here that the tide, the, the tide of success of the Confederacy turned. From this spot, the defeated troops fell back and never again made a successful stand. This was indeed the high watermark of the rebellion. And he is the one that designed this monument. So he named it after how he viewed this interpretive spot. And he was, for all intents and purposes, correct. I mean, this was the, the, the acme of Confederate success. And from here on, the army is just biding time until the end. What's crucial here is that John Batchelor made it a, his life mission to elevate Gettysburg as the most important battle of the entire Civil War. Everything hinged on Gettysburg and what was the pivotal moment of Gettysburg, as you pointed out, according to Batchelder and now others, was Pickett's Charge. Batchelder's high-watermark monument set the tone. Gettysburg, the place at which North and South had fought each other over three bloody days, was to become the site of sectional reunion. Batchelder had rules, and one of the rules was that these monuments were not to incite sectional hostility. They were not to, uh, they were always to show respect to their former adversaries and go mute with the politics. And for the most part, the monuments did just that. I'll give you a quick example. First Minnesota has one of the iconic monuments on the battlefield. It's a man charging, a regiment that lost more than 85%. It might have been pushing 90%. Horrific losses. The first proposal of the first Minnesota by the veterans Union soldier with a bayonet on their musket and the soldiers going after three snakes. The snakes of secession. Batchelder got that proposal and said, no, we can't accept that. Right? That's going to inflame hostilities. And so they settled on a single soldier charging because what the monuments do is they attest to the valor. What the veterans had a message for us today, just look at the numbers. It tells it all. You don't need us to talk about politics. We don't need to talk about union. We don't need to talk about emancipation. We don't need to talk about slavery. We don't need to talk about the rebels. All you got to do, look at the losses. It says it all. Those are the facts. Those facts, they cannot be questioned. Our blood sacrifice is why you come here to Gettysburg. Blood sacrifice. A key thing there is, is, the, is, the, is, the, is the co-mingling of the, of the blood of both sides. The Battlefield of Gettysburg was not the only place, but it was the, it was the main place, the most dramatic place, where there were these veterans' reunions in the late 19th century. And famously, the biggest one of all, 50 years after the battle, 1913, veterans, old men by then, from the Union Army uh, and the Confederate Army of Northern Virginia, came back together for this celebration to remember a battle which was, by that stage, 50 years on, imagined to be of huge importance in world history because of what it had prevented, which was the breakup of the greatest nation in the history of mankind, the United States of America. Gettysburg's guns are still, and the dead sleep on. America's most famous battleground is a camp again, 
with a road dividing the blue and gray. There is no other dividing line now, as 2,500 veterans gather from north and south. Hello! And President Woodrow Wilson, who, who came at the time, came and explicitly said, let us not discourse upon the, the origins and causes of this conflict. Let us just remember the results, and the results are that the nation has grown stronger together for this mutual bloodlust. That's the, that's the narrative that had been sown and, and seeded by people on both sides, and well-meaning people and people who were mourning their own personal losses and people who'd fought here and people like Batchelder who just rushed here as soon as the battle was over. You know, hundreds of thousands of people contributed over the, in the decades following the battle to the building of this idea that somehow this had kind of all been staged in order to make America a stronger, greater place. I think that's really well said. And I think it is a reminder of how challenging it is for us as historians to be able to create a conversation with people that says there is a, a dominant public message what we would call discourse, that message that Wilson articulated that you just summarized. What we lose sight of is that what was occurring here during this reunion, there was a lot of, I would say, contentious moments. In fact, there was a handful of veterans who were admitted to the Gettysburg Hospital because serious fights with Significant injuries occurred uh, between Confederate and Union veterans. One fight occurred because one Confederate had said some ugly things about Abraham Lincoln. There were plenty of Union soldiers who were adamant that no Confederate monument should be on this battlefield. And it is a reminder to all of us that the dominant or public message that we read in our get from our news, that there are very complicated stories occurring beyond that. What on the surface appears to be sort of placid or uniform, it's again should ask us to find and seek for those more complicated stories so that the first reunion, which is 1887 or 1888, the veterans of Pickett's men, there's a picture of them. And it's again, that iconic image of them standing on one side of the stone wall, shaking hands with the Union soldiers, their former adversaries, the very men they fought on July 3rd. And Adam, I want to come back to this and ask you this point, because I ask people when I stand there, what should we make of this? Should we not, should we not recognize and even celebrate that here there is reconciliation on the very ground where they slaughtered each other's comrades and they've somehow been able to forgive and come back here? Not many civil wars in world history have achieved that. But of course, there's another part of that question. Can you have social justice and still have reconciliation? And I don't have any answer to that. But I'll tell you this, there should be a sign right there asking us that question. And I don't know what to say about that because we know, Adam, that those Confederate soldiers who were saying, we're all Americans now, just respect us for our bravery. Let's not talk about the causes of the war. Let's not talk about the unfinished business of this war. We won't do any of that. We'll come back to this country. But you're going to give us home rule, right? You're going to give us home rule. And we know home rule in the South meant the exploitation and the political violation of African-Americans and poor whites as well. That was a sectional bargain. Uh, we are safely reunited as a strong United States. But in return, black people in the South were the 
casualties of that of that sectional reconciliation. Absolutely. And I'll just complicate it just a little bit more. Yes, a white republic, but we should know that, of course, large numbers of poor whites, not only were they also being disfranchised, they pushed out of the political system. This question is so important. How do you raise that at a historical site when, you know, mom and dad's got three kids who'd rather be at King's Dominion on the roller coaster and it's bloody hot out there and they've just got an hour or two on the battlefield and here I come in as the academic and say, I want to sort of, you know, take away from this moment and I got to ask you some really hard questions. I want you to think about it. It is really hard, this, right? So it's really hard. It's because Gettysburg really dramatizes the challenge that we all have as historians who want to talk about difficult paths, which is that one of the main reasons why people who aren't students or scholars of history consume history is because it's it's entertaining, it's exciting. And if you're coming to a place because you're on vacation, you don't want to be challenged by uncomfortable uh, realities. And I mean, you know, why why should you on one level, right? I mean, that's not what you're paying. That's literally not what you're paying your money for. So I think that you've hit the, 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 the nail on the head here. And that is people come to vacation for escape and they want to be entertained and they also want to be engaged. It's that those stories of heroism and of drama, they did happen here. But there are people, critics of the National Park, critics of Civil War history, who say that what we basically, we pander to people's need for drama and excitement rather than really engaging them in a cerebral way. But your point is what we should never forget, that we can draw people into this place and we can do some entertaining without selling our souls with the hope that they will leave this place with a question or two that they will always be sort of wrestling with and that they'll maybe come back and dig a little bit deeper. The other thing to remind ourselves of is that Gettysburg draws a certain class and race of people for the most part. It's sort of middle to lower middle class. It's mostly white. We have to recognize that families that come to these places, probably their parents at some point took them to a historical site like Gettysburg. That tradition has to be established at an early age if that child, when he or she becomes an adult, is going to take their kids. What's the, the, the crisis of history? Is it underserved communities, whether they're poor blacks, poor whites, or Latinos, I don't care what their color is, is that they don't have the resources to come to a place like this. The rich schools do. They come when they are 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and it is an experience that they'll take with them their entire lives. And we know that people will come and visit historical sites as adults if they did it as kids. But is it just about resources? Isn't it because the demographic that you're describing have an idea that by coming to Gettysburg, they are experiencing their history? This is a story that means something directly to them, as, as you just said, predominantly white Americans. This is the place they come to to understand the Civil War, and the, and the Civil War is this great dramatic event in American history, uh, which helps to explain who they are and why this is this is a great nation. And there are other populations in the United States who just don't feel that way. Yes, I think you make a salient point there that people often go to historic site if they say they can see themselves in it. I think that that's not always the case. And I think that it often becomes patronizing, particularly to black people, that we have to say, well, we got to find black stories here 
to try to lift up black visitation. I think that black people understand that if you do good history, complicated history, and it tells the stories because good history tells the stories of everyone, that they will come. Look, the park here does good history. The employees here think about it in complicated ways. They talk about the politics. They talk about race. But when you take away the politics, you take away why this place matters, and you actually, I think, demean the memories of men on both sides. And just because they could not act upon their political beliefs because these armies were armies of coercion, which we often forget, uh, I think that that's part of the problem. We don't see the role of coercion. It's everywhere. It's invisible. It's through the newspaper accounts. It's through rumor between the army and the home front. It's between the peer pressure. It's between the violence that armies inflict on men if they don't do what they're supposed to do. So. When you come to Gettysburg, it's easy to get lost in these dramatic stories because they are powerful and they're compelling. But we lose, we lose the dark side of this place. And you lose the dark side of this place, you lose the politics of it. So what is it about Gettysburg that makes it the battle that everybody remembers? I think a lot of it is to do with the speech that Lincoln gave here. He encapsulated in that short address a vision of what the United States can and should be, what at its best it stands for, that continues to resonate. Some of the answer, I think, is to do with the fact that this was the battle, the biggest battle by far that was fought on northern soil. This was the moment in the war when the war came home to northerners. But I do think there's something else going on here at Gettysburg as well. This was the last great battle of the Civil War which can be told, a story of which can be told if you wish to tell it like this, as a clash between two big white armies in which therefore you can remove, put to one side, reserve for another day, minimize the underlying causes of the Civil War. You can minimize the significance of slavery. You can minimize the role of African-Americans because they weren't fighting here. So there's a kind of insularity about the Battle of Gettysburg. It's a self-contained story, and for generations of white Americans, it is the familiar story of the Civil War. And the challenge for the interpreters of this battle, for the public historians, for the battlefield guides, for those who uh, are in charge of attracting tourists to this part of south-central Pennsylvania, is to somehow weave the old Civil War narratives of generals and tactics and the undoubted valor of ordinary white troops into the wider context of a war that took place because of slavery and which resulted in the freedom of four and a half million formerly enslaved people. It was that, it was the battle over slavery which made the American Civil War a revolutionary experience, which makes it more than 
anything else about the war the thing that gives it its global historical significance. And Gettysburg has every right to be at the center of that story, that even grander story of human emancipation. And if, if the battle is imagined in that way, as a fight between two big white armies, but which led, which was part of a broader struggle, which resulted in the destruction of the legal recognition of property in man in the United States, then I think that is something worth keeping, worth remembering, a reason in the end to come here. You've been listening to The Last Best Hope podcast. The producer is Emily Williams and I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.